And strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, remember, if you believe you have the oldest AC in the Valley, you could win a brand new high-efficiency AC with an air purifier, courtesy of the good people at Day and Night Air Conditioning. All you have to do is text the word DAY to 411923 to enter, and remember that message and data rates may apply. Had a good conversation today. I like to get opposite points of view and allow people to have their time to speak. Um, and so there's an organization. Um, that is uh, that that is um, the Kino Initiative, and they are an advocacy group that are trying to change the perception of migrants. And I will tell you that one of the things that we've done in in the country that I think is bad, uh, it's the Kino Border Initiative, is we have lumped everybody together. And I don't mean it as an insult to the people that are here illegally, but I also do not want to diminish the hard work of the people that have done it. The right way. I will. I, and I also have been very clear that I believe that our immigration system is flawed and broken and needs to be revamped and needs to be fixed. That doesn't excuse breaking the law. But talking to Pedro de Velasco this morning, um, I want you to hear a little bit of his comments and I'm going to kind of rebut a little bit now. I wanted to give him every opportunity to talk. And so here are just some of the things he talked about people being immediately de- de- uh, denied at the border because of Title 42. This recent announcement that you're referring to is more about uh, expanding Title 42 to Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and since October, but they're just affirming Venezuela nationals as well. And you can see that, you know, these are countries with there are huge humanitarian crisis, political crisis, climate crisis, and, you know, people are fleeing from these situations and finding shop doors because right now, if any of these nationalities approach the port of entry, they will be uh, denied admission. So here is where I take just a little bit of issue. The American people, first of all, in my estimation, are the most benevolent giving people on the planet. I think we take pride in immigration. I think we embrace immigration. I think we are all prideful when we see someone uh, pass the citizenship test and become naturalized citizens in our country. I think we take it as a compliment. Now, there are some that do not, but as a whole, as a nation, we certainly do. So the idea that we just are arbitrarily telling people no, I think is kind of a false narrative. There is a crisis at our southern border. There is a crisis at the southern border where there are waves of people coming in much bigger numbers than before. There are people that are coming to this country that they know that they are being taught how to say the right things to gain entry, even though the people that are teaching them what to say understand that they are not going to be given safe haven permanently, that they are eventually going to be turned back. That's not good. They should not be coming and they should not be clogging up the system. This should be an orderly way of doing things. And again, I understand and I do not want to appear cold hearted. I'm giving out facts here. I understand that there are desperate people that are trying for a better life. But if you look at what's happening in Mexico and and he commented about Mexico not being safe and what's happening in border towns across the U.S., it certainly isn't humane. And it certainly is not the fault of the U.S. 
this has got to be fixed. It has got to be changed. But I want you to hear his comments talking about specifically about the safety of Mexico. 80% of the people that we are encountering, at least in Nogales, they're internally displaced from the violence in Mexico. So Mexico is not a safe country. So when we talk about like safe country, it should be a place that can guarantee the safety and well-being of asylum seekers. And that's not the situation of Mexico. Mexico cannot even guarantee the safety of their own nationals. And now we're sending other nationalities and forcing them to wait in this country. And for what? But we also have to understand that there is a lot of crime that's coming across our border. We have got such an influx of drugs through the ports of entry because our resources on the border are so kept with these groups of people that are crossing that we cannot interdict the drugs. The cartels have such a stranglehold on the border. This is a it is a one sided view. It is a viable conversation. I'm glad that he came on. I'd welcome him back any time. But there has to be some pushback eventually in saying this is not the fault of the American people. I would say that our system needs to be fixed, but it doesn't excuse people doing it the wrong way and then saying, I'm in a bad place. I'm going to use the example as harsh as it may sound. It is, it equated, and for me, it's equating and saying that a shoplifter is a customer in a store. We understand that there are different set, different causes and different reasons. We have all seen, I think, we know about people that have done things Things like shoplift to feed their children. They take baby formula or they take diapers or they take some food because their kids are hungry. That is a different set of circumstances than when you see somebody go into a grocery store and steal a bunch of steaks or steal liquor or steal whatever. There's a two different sets of circumstances, but it's the same crime. We don't excuse either one. We handle the two situations differently, but we don't call either group a customer in that store. A customer is someone that goes in and buys things. And what you want to do is stop the theft all the way across the board. That doesn't mean you're a horrible person because you're not allowing someone to shoplift from your store. That doesn't make you a bad person that you want the crime to stop. And this is the the gray areas. This is not the black and white. These are the nuances of what needs to be fixed. I would say to you that I think there needs to be a serious conversation of how we repair our asylum and our immigration system as a whole. But excusing the behavior of people that are coming here and are being told by the cartels they're going to get safe passage if they use certain verbiage and they say the right things is the wrong way to handle this problem. It's the wrong way to handle it. So he talks about asylum, and this is another area. He believes that people claiming asylum brings order to the border. People have the right to seek asylum. So as long as you keep it open, it will normalize as it did with uh, tourism. If you come down to the border right now, you'll see normal lines of people, of vehicles coming to the United States orderly. But again, this is where I have a little bit of a disagreement. What he is saying is if we restored full asylum, well, we, the, I, we, know, we know that that's not the case because when Title 42 was set to expire – there were waves of people that were leaving places like Venezuela and, and Nicaragua, and they were making their way north, 
stationed at the border so that when Title 42 expired, they were going to come in. They caused a bigger wave when the word got out that Title 42 was going to expire. So there is just a recent example that restoring asylum or whatever you want to call it causes it to, to, to level out, that eventually the lines will grow smaller. That is not the case. With desperation that there is, with circumstances as they are, just take the countries he named of Venezuela, Nicaragua, um, was it Guatemala was one of them, and, and Cuba. When you talk about those nations where people are coming here, when you talk about just those nations, if the door is open, open. If we tell people you will get safe passage in applying for asylum, whether it's a legitimate claim or not, that you will be gain entry, it is not going to reduce the number of people at the border. It is going to increase those numbers because people believe now it's worth the risk of selling everything and having the cartels bring them north. There's got to be a better solution to this problem. Now, he was not saying that the United States isn't a benevolent country. I started off saying that because at our core, I will tell you – I think most Americans want a solution to this problem, but it's got to be a solution that's good for America as well as it's good for the people coming here. We cannot discount what the American people need in all of this, which is a safe system we can be proud of that doesn't overwhelm border communities and then communities across the country where people are being bussed. It just can't happen. All right, we do something at 1120. If you're new to the show, thanks for listening. We have a segment at 1120 called Did You Hear This? We update you on the biggest news stories. It happens next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, let's get you caught up on those big headlines. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. As the public begins to find out more about the classified documents discovered at President Biden's garage, many are asking questions, including Louisiana Senator John Kennedy. There are a lot of other intriguing questions for the inspector general. Number one, was there a cover-up? The powers that be have known about all this since November 2nd. It's now the middle of January. Was there a cover-up? Who was involved? Are you concerned by the withholding of the story? Yeah, I am, you know, just like anybody else would be. uh, And it is interesting that he talks about a double standard as well. And I think that's a big concern for people. The sitting president of the United States, when he was vice president, had documents going back to November. We know that the second set of documents was found in his garage um, and uh, he made an excuse and said my garage was locked. There's Most Americans would say that's not good enough. Um, there's a lot of questions that should be answered. Was there a cover-up? Should be one of them. Did other members of Congress? know That should be another question that's asked and answered. And how many other presidents or vice presidents that are still alive have documents that are stored this way that would be considered classified? Is this a widespread issue that just needs to be cleaned up? Or are these two stories about the former President Trump and current President Biden anomalies. Those are questions the American people should need to have answered as well. Pedro de Velasco, the Director of Education and Advocacy at the Cano Border Initiative, says we should bring back asylum claims at the border. People have the right to seek asylum. So as long as you keep it open, it will normalize as it did with uh, tourism. If you come down to the border right now, you'll see normal lines of people, of vehicles, coming to the United States orderly. What do you think about this? I think that we have rules in place in our legal, just, in our legal system and other aspects of our legal 
legal system where people cannot bring frivolous lawsuits into court to not overwhelm the courts with cases. We have things in place to stop that from happening. Yes, we should always be a nation of asylum. We should always be a place of refuge for people that are escaping danger. But we also know that there are millions of people that are abusing this system. Well over 50 percent, well over 50 percent of the claims that have been made in recent years for asylum are denied eventually. It overwhelms the system. It bogs down the system and it's causing a lot of problems. And now we're seeing it worse than ever. Something has to be done and it can't be laid at the feet of the American people only and a flawed immigration system. This has to do with the message that's getting to people in these countries that's giving them reason to believe they're going to get safe passage into the U.S. The message has to change. The policies have to change. And then the system has to be fixed. You're listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to get you caught up on the biggest news stories of the day. Former FBI ASAC Steve Hooper talks to you today about ways parents can help to maintain school safety. We have a whole process we put them through called IDENT. They identify, document, engage, notify, and then take action. And so we, we train people on this process. And it's a proactive approach that they're reaching out. And, and the schools we work with have told us that this has been beneficial. How can processes like IDENT prevent situations from escalating? Oh, I will tell you, first of all, that uh, that Steve Hooper and his wife are, are, are experts in this area. Both of them combined have spent over 50 years with the FBI. Their company, Tripwire Security Solutions, is excellent. They advise corporations. They advise school districts on how you can own the threat, and they give you practical application of how you can have somebody that's gaining intelligence. You know, coming from that world, they believe that intelligence is the key, that when you have someone, and in this case, let's talk about school students, when you have a student that is making statements that are concerning to someone, when it's reported, there is somebody at the school that takes that report and has it in a file. So when somebody else from another part of that student's life comes in and says, you know what, it's weird, they're posting things on social media, or they said something at practice or in the car, that you start building something that shows that there might be a reason to intervene here. That is a plan. Nothing is fail-safe, nothing is 100%, but this is these are tried and true um, uses of, of, of intelligence that have been done when it comes to terrorism or it comes to other things as well, and making sure that we're trying to intervene before a problem happens seems to be the key, and I think Hooper's right on the money. Phoenix Assistant Police Chief Brian Chapman says he hopes that the public input on the use of force policy will help create transparency in the community. People that have been proponents of defund the police movement uh, and talking about wanting police organizations to reform, this is their opportunity to have a voice in that and and be very objective about what we're doing and and provide that input. Will this collaboration promote better well-being between the police and the community? I think if it is well and Intended and well received from both sides, absolutely. A relationship takes two sides. There are, you're not going to please everybody, but I think the outreach to the public and saying, these are the things that we are looking to implement. What are your thoughts? And then giving thoughtful consideration to what you get in. If nothing else shows that you have an honest engagement with the community, I think it's a great first step. We're going to replay a lot of that interview coming up here in a few moments. The candor, uh, the, you know, just the thoroughness of the conversation I thought was fantastic. And I want to thank the chief for coming on. He's the assistant chief in Phoenix, and it was a great conversation that needs to be... uh, We're going to dive into it, and I think it's necessary. We'll do that here in a few minutes. 
Yeah, we're going to do that. Uh, uh, the assistant chief, Brian Chapman, was kind enough to come in for two segments on the show. We covered a bunch of things, including this plea to the public to give them some input on their uh, use of force policy changes that may be made in the new policy that goes out. So I'll let you hear a little bit of what the, the chief had to say in a few moments. We talked about recruitment and retention of officers. We talked about crime. We talked about a lot of different things, and it gives you a little bit better behind-the-scenes look at what policing is really all about. So we'll give you a chance to hear a bunch of this stuff coming up next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. We had a great uh, conversation today, this morning, with uh, uh, Assistant Chief Brian Chapman from the Phoenix Police Department. One of the big things that's come out recently is proposed changes or updates, I should say, to the use of force policy in the city of Phoenix. And they are asking for public input. So before I got to asking him about the public input, I was asking him about the changes to the policy. I asked him, uh, you know, kind of what motivated some of these things. But when we got to the part about public input, he it was an interesting answer of why he believes it's needed. So what you see as a draft policy today is a combination of a couple months of work of getting this policy to the point where it is in draft form and that we're looking for public input and input from our employees as well because this impacts everybody. And uh, that's uh, what we're hoping to engage on. And it's not going to be a, a policy of perfect. And we understand that there's going to be some movement from what it looks like today to what it's going to finalize, but uh, we hope to ha- have some uh, input from all all factors of our community. Now, this is my um, opinion. This was not a conversation with, with the chief, but the uh, there needs to be some education in here as well. And I, what I would say about that is um, there needs to be a better understanding from civilians about what police endure and what they face. They make split, dec- split second decisions sometimes, and if they don't act or react appropriately, it can cost someone their life. If they overreact, it can cost someone their life. And uh, if they underreact, it could cost them or a fellow officer or someone in their life. So this is a very serious issue, but I think public input has to come from a more educated position. And what I mean by that is when you have a better understanding of what the police are facing, um, if you've ever watched the shoot, don't shoot scenarios that they go through um, with with a suspect that is being uncooperative with show me your hands or whatever else and how it can turn deadly in an instant, you get a better understanding even in a fake scenario of how stressful something like that can be. So I think it's a two-way street in the relationship, but I'm glad that the city is reaching out and asking for public input. Part of it also had to do with the fact that the Department of Justice has been you know, at Phoenix Police now for for well over a year. The elephant in the room is the Department of Justice investigation and uh, the Department of Justice has been here for almost a year and a half now and part of that process has been an evaluation of every facet of our organization. So what are the changes? And this is part of the conversation to what this policy might be. Well, one thing is different is it's more concise than previous versions. It's plain language, easy to read and easy to understand. And what you see is a draft policy that has some core principles 
principles and some some guiding values and an expectation of where our levels of force will be. For example, in this policy, there are three levels of force that talk about what they are, how they're reported, and that's good accountability for within the organization for our people and its transparency for the community as well. And I think there's a little bit of both there. I think that for officers to understand exactly what's expected of them in this policy um, is is beneficial to an officer so they don't have to second-guess themselves in a moment's notice. The reason why and what you don't see is training. One of my big concerns, um, as I've talked about the short staffing of the Phoenix Police Department, this is a little bit of a side note, is when you don't have enough officers that are on the street um, to enforce laws and to be on patrol and answer calls for service, one of the things that suffers at times is training. The ability to pull officers off the street so that they can train and have continuing education is one of the benefits of being a better police officer is when you're able to do those things. As understaffed as Phoenix PD is, how do they find time? So they've got to do things during briefings. They've got to do things at other times. But a lot of these situations and a lot of these characteristics are learned. And I've talked about just the tunnel vision part of things. Now, this is told to me by police officers my brother included his wife who are police officers that it's it's interesting of as a normal civilian as a normal human being there are certain things that are just normal and natural to you and that you get tunnel visioned you get involved in a chase with somebody if you're running after someone you're chasing them in a car you get tunnel visioned your peripheral vision naturally kind of shuts down and you see what's right in front of you and what you're chasing police officers train and it is a learned skill to keep your peripheral vision available to you so that you're watching what's going on around you for dangers to the community and dangers to yourself. And that's just part of it. But use of force is the same thing. De-escalating on a moment's notice, realizing that the threat has diminished or increased and responding appropriately for for personal safety and for public safety. It's another thing. So we also went into technology. How has technology changed this? For reasons of technology and the way things have changed, um, there's some complexity to a, a number of uh, things that we do, and uh, we want to try to be a- as as concise as possible. And, uh, you know, um, it is uh, interesting when we talked with him about uh, what happens in a in a in a situation. And um, I asked him when you what was the one thing that you wish people would know about them or understand better? And he said, we're all human beings and we all have emotions. That's the other part of it. There have been a couple of scenarios that I've witnessed with my own eyes, having been given the privilege to ride along with Phoenix PD in a number of very high you know crime areas, high intense, high call volume areas, and watching how they, you can watch their training without even realizing you're watching their training. And it is de-escalation of emotion. It is when the adrenaline, when it isn't like on TV, I just, you know, I think most of us know that, but I can assure you that you don't get into a shootout with a suspect or a foot chase with a suspect, put them in handcuffs, send them away in a police car, and then you jump in your car and you're off shooting somebody else in the next scene. There is a lot of paperwork that's involved, but there also is a lot of training in how those scenarios play out. Um, I've talked about this before. I'll give you an example. Uh, There was an officer. I've told this story so much. I hope you haven't heard it, but if you have, bear with me. Um, There was an officer recently, maybe a year ago. 
and she was called to a scene of a suspect with a knife, 43rd Avenue and Union Hills in the Northwest Valley. And uh, she was the first officer on scene by herself and confronting a suspect with a large knife in the parking lot, making loud demands and uh, screaming at her, calling her names, pursuing her and threatening her with a knife. She exited her vehicle. She walked backwards away from the person. You can see her in this cell phone video looking at all of the people around in her surroundings that if she had to discharge her weapon, that there were no civilians that might get injured. She's kept a safe distance, but always kept them in her line of sight. It was like a training video for officers, and you could hear other officers coming. You could hear the sirens coming, but they weren't there yet. And about 10 or 15 seconds before help arrived, she was forced to shoot the subject. But all of that training that goes into that scenario, that if you think about you or I in a parking lot, armed or disarmed, I mean, I'm usually armed when I'm in public, but if I'm armed and confronted with someone that wants to injure me that's using a knife, when you look at that, you think about what would I be looking at? That tunnel vision again. I would be laser focused on that knife. There would be a lot of things after watching that video that I would hope that I would do that I don't know that I would be capable of doing. They train for it. They retrain for it. They replay those scenarios as often as they can. So when involved in a real life situation, the training kicks in. So that's part of the use of force thing. We had a bunch of other conversations. We had conversations about recruiting and retention. We're going to get to that in a few moments so you get a better picture of what's going on at Phoenix PD. We'll get to it here coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. Happy Friday the 13th. Hopefully you don't believe in all that stuff. But anyway, um, uh, happy Friday. Hope you got a good weekend planned. Uh, We were talking about retention and with recruitment. um, And I talked to him about, first we talked about retention. He said it's better than it was last year. And I talked to him about recruitment and asked him why people come to the Phoenix Police Department. He also talked about working with the Department of uh, Defense. And it was an interesting thing that they are doing in a program for people transitioning out of the military. We've onboarded a program with the Department of Defense called SkillBridge. And SkillBridge allows people who are transitioning out of the uh, uh, armed forces uh, for up to six months they can be hired by like the city of Phoenix and the Department of Defense will pay for their training during the academy and their wages. So when you look at the opportunity for that, just from a dollars and cents standpoint, that saves the city about forty-two to $45,000 in training and, and costs for that. So that's, you know, that's a great savings for the city. Also, you're talking about a skill set when the, in the armed forces and a discipline. And a lot of times the requirements for jobs are similar. So you've got the background checks and mental health evaluations, physical fitness. And so a lot of those things correlate very well. And I would imagine, I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine that you get a higher percentage of, of uh, recruits when you get them applying from the armed forces. Now, he was saying that the hiring percentages, they hire about 10% of the people that apply. 
So they had 335 people, uh, I think it was 330 people or something, 350 recruits that applied for a job. He said they'll get between 30 and 40 people out of that. I would imagine if they're coming from the armed forces, that number might be a bit higher. There was another program for recruitment called 30 for 30, and it involves recruiting women into the police force. Chief Sullivan and uh, the mayor and Councilwoman O'Brien signed on to the initiative of 30 for 30, which is having 30% of our academy uh, workforce being female by the year 2030. And uh, there's some programs and initiatives that's a, a nationwide initiative. I think over 250 other agencies have signed on. So it is they want to have a more diverse uh, agency. I will tell you that, uh, first of all, having girls, I want my girls to believe that if they're capable of doing a job, they should have an opportunity to do any job. My sister-in-law, who I love very much, she is the sister I've never had. Uh, she is a deputy in my hometown and is a great cop. Um, I think that there are a lot of people in that in that profession that are females. I don't think this even needs to be said anymore, that are very big assets to the agencies that they work for. So I'm glad that they are diversifying where they're looking. And I think more than anything else, we want safe streets. The city of Phoenix, it's no secret, the city of Phoenix is way under what they need in officers, and it doesn't make for a safer city. It certainly doesn't make for a safer job for cops. They are strained and stressed in a lot of different areas, and they're doing the best they can with the numbers that they have. Hopefully, those numbers will grow over the years. We'll see a higher retention rate. We'll see a better recruiting rate without lowering their standards, because in the end, I think all of us have the same goal which is we want a safe city to live in, where good people feel as if they can walk the streets and live their lives in relative safety. And if a situation comes up where they need a police officer or police officers dialing 911 or dialing the non-emergency number, that you're going to get a timely response from the police agency in the city you live in. I think that is something that every taxpayer, every citizen, should have a relatively uh, easy expectation that that's what's going to happen. So I want to thank the chief for coming on. It was an interesting conversation. It's the the first time I've had an extended conversation with him, and I think it was very worthwhile. I hope you'll go back and listen to the interviews today. There were three very good ones, Um, whether it was Pedro de Velasco, who was talking about the border, my friend Steve Hooper, who talked about school security, and it was a very fascinating and interesting take and look at school security, but especially Chief Chapman and the Phoenix Police Department. They'll be on the podcast later on in the show and download the podcast as well. Uh, You hear the music. We're just about out of time for the weekend, which means if you're a social media user, the way you can get in touch over the weekend is at Broomhead KTAR. That's my personal Twitter handle. Hit me up there. If you get a response, it's directly from me. At Broomhead Show updates you on what's happening on the show with our guests and otherwise. And Mike Broomhead, all one word on Instagram is how you can follow with pictures and keep in touch with messages. I would love to stay in touch between shows. It's a great way to correspond when we're not on the air. Don't forget that the governor is on with Gatos and Chad this afternoon at 2.05. And until uh, Tuesday for us, because we're off on Monday, have a great weekend, everyone. God bless.